unique opportunity to celebrate the birth of our Savior in the middle of the year. We're so grateful to give attention to these things in a way that might be fresh without the trappings of the Christmas season that can so often distract us from the message. So we ask, Lord, as we open your word, that you would speak in a fresh and new way to each one of us. Would you impact us with your word? Would you paint the picture for us of the great work that you have done for us in the giving of your Son? Thank you, Father, for this moment. Thank you for this time. Thank you for these people who come together now to hear your word, to receive what you have for us. Would you change us? Would you grow us? Would you teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The children can go on down to uh, Junior Church in the South Wing. Toddle time for the younger ones downstairs. We continue this morning sermon series through the Gospel of Matthew. And we come now to a very familiar passage. By way of review, let me just remind you of the kind of some overview comments about the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew wrote his Gospel to fuel the mission to all nations by unfolding the history of Jesus' establishment of the heavenly kingdom on earth through his life, ministry, teaching, death, and resurrection in fulfillment of Old Testament expectation. From last week, we looked at the opening of this gospel, the opening genealogy. And that genealogy emphasized Jesus' connection to Abraham and to King David and set the stage for Jesus as the one who would restore the people, God's people, from exile. But the genealogy ended with a problem. Matthew 1.16 concludes the genealogy with these words, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Matthew words this last section very carefully to make it clear that Joseph did not father or beget Jesus. So how then does this genealogy apply to Jesus at all? That's the question Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, is seeking to answer for us. And so as we come into Matthew 1, 18 to 25, again, a familiar passage from Christmas every year we look at it. Let's try to look at it with fresh eyes this morning. So would you follow along as we read these words from Matthew 1, 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David... Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So we begin in verse 18 with the birth of Jesus, the Messiah. But actually we're talking about the genesis of Jesus, the Messiah. The genesis of Jesus, the Messiah. Matthew 1.18 begins with the phrase, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. The word translated birth is the word genesis. A word we saw Last week, in verse 1, at the very beginning of the whole gospel, he sets the title, as it were, of this story, the book of Genesis, of Jesus the Messiah, in verse 1. Now he uses that Greek word, Genesis, yet again. We're talking about the birth of Jesus Christ, but we're actually talking about more than just his birth. It's more about his origin, his beginning. And at that point, immediately, we should start having wrinkles forming in our brain. Because we know, as Christians, that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He has no genesis. He has no beginning. He has no origin. So how is it that Matthew can use this word to apply to Jesus? Well, of course, the birth of Jesus is about the beginning, the origin, the genesis of his human nature. This is something new. And as we talked about last week, when... When Matthew uses this word Genesis, he's taking us back to the book of Genesis. And what happens at the beginning of the book of Genesis? Creation. And we talked about last week how this story is how God is setting off the new creation. He's beginning the new creation with Jesus. And so it is that the origin of Jesus, the Messiah, is the origin of His human nature. His body, his physical humanity was fashioned in the womb in an act of creation, just as before. And so Jesus' humanity has a decisive beginning point right here in the womb of Mary. And that's what we're really looking at this morning, the genesis of Jesus, the Messiah. The Messiah, Christ, the Anointed One. This is not a divine title. Christ is a human title. It holds forth His humanity as the one chosen by God, the one anointed by God to fulfill the great task of being the great king, the ultimate prophet, and the true priest. All in this one man who is also God. But the title Messiah, the title Christ, emphasizes His humanity, His human nature, which is beginning right here in this moment. And so we look at the genesis of Jesus the Messiah. In in the rest of verse 18 and on through verse 20, we are looking at God overcoming another threat. God overcoming another threat. And that threat is divorce. Look at those verses again. Verse 18 and then on into verse 19 for the moment. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. 
Now, if you're paying attention, you're reading in your Bible, you may notice that I skipped a phrase. That was on purpose, not a mistake. But I want you to see what's going on through Joseph's eyes. The story is being told from Joseph's perspective here. And the phrase that I omitted from the Holy Spirit, he does not know. All he knows is that Mary is with child, and he didn't do it. That's all he knows. That's all the information he has. And so he begins to try to resolve that in his own mind. How can he deal with this situation based on what he knows? And so given that fact, that they've been betrothed, which is more than our cultural, common, modern understanding of engagement. This is a contractual reality. This is actually stage two in the ancient world of the marriage process. Stage one is two sets of parents get together and arrange for their children to marry later on in life. That's stage one. That happened maybe several years before this event. Stage two has now commenced. They've betrothed themselves to each other. They've actually come together under the Jewish canopy, the chuppah, that's still used today in modern Jewish weddings, where they've come together and they've exchanged vows with each other. They've committed to one another in a contractual way. But they don't come together to live together at that point. In fact, once the betrothal is sealed, there's usually an exchange of money or gifts between the families. And it's a legal, binding relationship that has begun. But they don't actually spend much time together. Unlike us, when we have engagement between a couple, we might spend more time together than we were before. There might be extensive dating that happens, and we're getting to know each other. That typically was not the case in the ancient world. After a couple was betrothed, they went on living their separate lives for about a year, typically. The husband, however, was focused for that year on preparing a home for his new wife. And so the next year would be dedicated to him maybe building an extension, a physical extension onto the home of his father where he and his wife would live later on. And during this period, they would call each other and they would be referred to as other by other people as husband and wife, even though they don't live together and they don't spend much time together. And so that's the situation that we're facing here. And so what has happened, the text says in verse 18, before they came together, before they were living together, before they had come together for the consummation of their marriage, she was found to be with child. If you remember the rest of the story from Luke's gospel, we know that the angel had appeared to her and told her that she was going to conceive. And then she went off to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who had recently conceived a baby in her old age. And she spent three months there. And it was during that time that the conception actually happened. And so by this point, she's three months pregnant, probably showing a bit. And people are noticing. And it's likely that Mary is not the one who told Joseph. It's likely that some of her family sent word to Joseph and saying, hey, she's pregnant. Uh. And he's left at that point to draw his own conclusion. And of course, the only conclusion he could possibly draw, since he was not involved, is that another man was. And so based on that conclusion, reasonable conclusion, it's the only category he's got in his mind. He doesn't have a category like we do now of a miraculous conception. There's no way for him to even dream that up on his own. And so in his mind, he concludes that she has been unfaithful to him. And so, 
Verse 19 tells us that because he was a righteous man, a just man, and also because he did not want to put her to public disgrace, he chose to divorce her. That's the only way to break a betrothal in the ancient world. You issue a certificate of divorce. It's the same certificate of divorce that would be issued for a fully married couple, if you will. And he was going to make that decision. And our text tells us that it was because he was righteous that he did that. And because he was compassionate toward Mary that he was doing that. We'll come back to the implications of all that in just a minute. But what we see here is that this is another threat to the birth of God's King, the Messiah, the Savior to come, what needed to be in the line of David. And Joseph is the son of David. That's what we're going to see in just a moment when the angel addresses him. Son of David. He's the one who has the royal inheritance. How is Jesus going to get it if Joseph divorces Mary? And the answer is he won't. He won't. But he has to. And so at this point... Joseph's decided what to do, and God must intervene to overcome the threat to the continuance of the Messianic line, to the fulfillment of his promises. And I use that language to harken back to last week, because in the genealogy, we drew attention to the women who were mentioned in the genealogy. And one of the reasons they were mentioned is to draw attention to times in the story of the fulfillment of God's promises when those promises were being threatened, and God intervened in a very unique and special way to overcome the threat. And here we are again with another. Let me remind you of those four threats that we saw in the genealogy. The first threat was Judah's unrighteousness. Judah's unrighteousness, which was remedied by God using righteous Tamar. In the whole story of Genesis 38, Judah's own unrighteousness threatened the possibility that he could have a descendant who would pass on the line of kings that he, as the tribe of Judah, was supposed to originate. The second threat was Canaanite enemies, mentioned in Joshua 2. Canaanite enemies who could have eliminated Israel from coming into the land. But God used the Canaanite prostitute who becomes faithful Rahab to overcome that threat and ensure that they could take the land. The third threat that God overcame is the threat of death itself, where during the period of the judges, death visits the home of Naomi, her husband, her two sons, dead because of famine. And God uses Ruth, loyal Ruth, and her expression of loyalty to Naomi and to Naomi's God to overcome that threat of death, to produce an heir, to produce a son that would continue the line of kings. And finally, the threat that was mentioned as the wife of Uriah, King David's own sin, the chosen king himself, the fountainhead of the royal promise, was a great sinner. And his sin brought horrible suffering and horrible more sin to the line of kings. And it almost snuffed it out completely. God used the wife of Uriah to overcome the threat of David's own sin, and to shine the light on the promise of a greater king than David to come. And so it is now that God intervenes yet again to overcome the threat of divorce that could break the lineage at this point. Verse 20, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her 
is from the Holy Spirit. Now, Joseph knows the piece of information that Matthew wanted to make sure that we knew right up front by including that same phrase, from the Holy Spirit. No other man was involved in the conception of this baby. It was from the Holy Spirit. And now Joseph knows that detail. But notice the first command that the angel gives him is, do not fear. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And the situation is dire for Joseph. He has much to be afraid of. If he takes Mary as his wife, people will assume that he is the father of this baby. And people then will assume that he and Mary were unfaithful too early, if you will. That they would have engaged in sexual contact before their marriage was consummated and they would be stained publicly as unrighteous. And their reputation would be destroyed as a righteous person among the Jewish people. And so Joseph has much to fear, but the angel says, don't be afraid, do it anyway. And so what we see next is that, well, he does what he's told. And we'll see that in just a few minutes. But the significance of this passage has less to do with the birth of Jesus and more to do with the adoption and naming of the Messiah. That's what the focal point of the passage is. The adoption and naming of the Messiah. We see this reflected in verse 21 and then in verse 25. Matthew 1, 21, the angel continues speaking to Joseph. She will bear a son and you, Joseph, shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. And then in verse 25, we learn, and he called his name Jesus. He does what he is told. And so it is that the significance of naming the boy reflects the adoption of Jesus. Joseph, by naming the baby, by naming the baby boy, is adopting him as his own. And if he adopts him, then legally he can pass on the line of kings to this boy. And so that is how the problem that the genealogy ended with gets fixed. Joseph legally adopts the baby as his own, and therefore passes on the right of kingship to Jesus. And so it is that Jesus can be called the son of David. This is the only time in the Gospel of Matthew, out of nine times, that Matthew uses the phrase son of David, that it refers to anybody except Jesus. Joseph is the son of David. And the only way Jesus can become the son of David is if Joseph Joseph gives him that title by his adoption of him, and he does so. Let's talk about the naming of Jesus a bit. The significance of the name, Jesus. Jesus appears to have been, based on some statistical research from the documents that we have in the ancient world, a very, very common name at this time in history among the Jews. Seems to have been the sixth most common name among Jews around the time of the Messiah's birth. And Matthew tells us the meaning of the name of this boy. He will save his people from their sins. And the reason that meaning is so significant is because of the phrase, he will save. Jesus is simply an English way of bringing over the Greek, which is Jesus. And Jesus is simply a Greek way of bringing over the Hebrew, which is Yeshua. And Yeshua is an abbreviated form of the Hebrew Yehoshua. And Yehoshua and Yeshua 
typically are brought over into English as Joshua. It's an odd reality of tradition that we have Joshua and Jesus coming from the same Hebrew name. They are the same. They mean the same. But parents would have been naming their boys Jesus a lot during this period of time because when they did so, when they named their baby boy Jesus, Yeshua, they're professing their faith. They're expressing their hope that God is going to save them. And in this time period, particularly they're hoping that he will save them from their Roman overlords. They will, that God will come and save them from their continuing exile. We sang it in the song. O come, O come, Emmanuel, ransom captive Israel from their lonely exile. Because when the Messiah comes, even though they're in the land, as we talked about last week, the Jews are still in exile, alienated from God. They need to be saved from that. And so, mothers name their baby boys Jesus, saying, Lord, save, save us from this awful situation. But Matthew and the angel specifies a greater meaning, a deeper meaning, a fuller meaning, a bigger meaning. It's not just he will save in general, and it's not just that he'll save from exile or he'll save from our oppressors. He will save us He will save his people from their sins. That's the bigger problem. But most Jewish people weren't thinking about that. And there's a reason for that. The significance of Jesus being named Yeshua, Yeshua, he will save from their sins, does have to do with exile, but it has to do with more. Author Peter Bolt writes, Israel's sins had taken them from the glory days of the kingdom at the time of David and his son Solomon to the garbage days of exile. To mention their sins also brings to mind God's judgment of their sins. And this is what they need to be saved from. To be saved from their sins does not refer to them being kept from sinning, but to them being saved from the consequences of their sin. God's judgment and wrath. That is the great need of all the people. But what is unique in all of this is that if Jesus gets his name from the Hebrew verb yasha, which means he saves or he will save, there's only one place in the Old Testament where that verb is used of anything but saving from an external enemy. It's used lots of times in the Old Testament, speaking of God coming to save his people, hoping that God will come to save his people, But almost always, with one singular exception, it's he will save his people or he has saved his people from foreign oppressors, from the danger of the other nations. In Judges, it happens repeatedly. The hope is that God will come to save them from their enemies. But in one place, we get a picture of them being saved from an internal enemy related to sin. Ezekiel 36 and 37. Two verses in a singular passage, Ezekiel 36, verses 28 and 29. The Lord speaking through the prophet to the people in exile in Babylon. And you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you. I will yasha you from all your uncleannesses. 
That's an internal problem. I will save you, deliver you from all your uncleannesses. And then in the next chapter, after the famous vision of the dry bones in Ezekiel 37, verse 23, he says, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. This passage is a smack dab in the middle of a unit from Exodus 34 to Exodus 37. And those chapters are all about the new covenant, the promise that God is going to come and give His Holy Spirit and put His Spirit inside people and provide the cleansing that's needed and the forgiveness that's needed from sin. The transformation that's needed that is the real problem that will deliver them from their exile and their alienation from God. That's what we're talking about here. And when you see the phrase, you shall be my people and I will be your God, that's covenant language. That's marriage language. God is promising to marry them again and to take them as his own people again. And he's got to deal with the sin problem in order for that to happen. In all of the Old Testament, this is the only place where the verb save is used like this, to save from sin. And I'm sure But the angel has this in mind. The significance is huge. If we continue reading in Ezekiel 37, the very next verse, verse 24. My servant David shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. Skipping down to verses 26 to 28. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then, then the nations will know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. The sanctuary language, the dwelling place language, is all about Emmanuel, God being with His people. The Emmanuel prophecy famously comes from Isaiah, and we'll look at that in just a moment. But here, Ezekiel is pitching forth the same hope in terms of a temple. Ezekiel looks forward to the day of a construction of a grand temple, but he's not talking about a brick-and-mortar building. He's talking about God dwelling with His people in a new way. And that way comes to fulfillment as Matthew tells his story and shows how Jesus is God with us. And God comes to be with His people in the person of Jesus, and then He continues His presence with His people in the Holy Spirit so that... The people of God become the temple. That is the fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy. The extension of the new covenant, the new special intimate relationship with God on the basis of the forgiveness of sins, on the basis of an atonement accomplished in the death of His own Son. That is unfolding here. And it begins right here with the conception of a baby who is God with us in a greater sense than the temple ever was or ever could be. This is what we're looking at. This is what Christmas is all about. And this is what the name of Jesus signifies. He will save His people from their sins. 
Now let's come to the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, more Old Testament prophecy as it were. The one Matthew actually draws our attention to laser focus our attention on. Matthew 1, 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, we're about to wade into the deep end of the pool. So I invite you to join me. And let's swim in the deep end for a bit. We need to start here when we think about what does it mean when Matthew tells a story, writes down an event, and then says, this happened to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, and then quotes a very specific Old Testament prophecy. What is Matthew doing? And we need to start here because this is the first one. He will do this 12 times in his gospel. There's a cluster of them right here at the beginning in the first four chapters. And then there's another cluster at the end of the gospel. Matthew is very purposefully drawing our attention to certain passages of scripture. But we have to be careful about our assumptions at this point. We tend to read prophecy and fulfillment as though it were prediction. So that we look at Isaiah 7.14, which is the verse that Matthew quotes here, and we say, well, Isaiah was predicting that Mary, as a virgin, would give birth to Jesus, the Messiah. And that's not what's going on. There's something bigger, more amazing, that's going on. Matthew is not in any way taking Matthew Isaiah 7.14 out of context. But for us to understand what Matthew is doing, we got to go back there and consider the context of Isaiah chapter 7. And the reason we need to do this here, first and foremost, is because if we don't do it now, we will have a harder time understanding what in the world Matthew's doing with the Old Testament in chapter 2. Because he quotes a couple of Old Testament verses that are certainly not predictions in any way. And it's hard to, when you go back to those Old Testament contexts, it's hard to know what exactly does Matthew think he's doing with the Bible here. But if we can understand what he's doing here, then we're better prepared to understand what he's doing there in less clear passages than this one. So, let's wade in and see what we can draw out of this. Isaiah chapter 7, I invite you to open a Bible there. Verses will be on the screen as we look at them, but looking at it in your own Bible could be helpful here. Isaiah chapter 7 takes us back to about 700 years before Jesus, okay? 700 years before Jesus' birth. We are introduced to the King Ahaz in this passage. King Ahaz was one of the worst kings of Judah. Second Chronicles 28 gives a profile of him, and you can see a summary of what Second Chronicles 28 says about King Ahaz. Describes him with the typical phrase, he did not do what was right in the eyes of Yahweh, but he also provoked anger, provoked Yahweh to anger by setting up idols throughout Judah with material that was ripped from the temple in Jerusalem. And he was described in 2 Chronicles 28 as very unfaithful, very unfaithful. I want to draw your attention to that because in all the other kings that are mentioned, many of them are described as unfaithful, but only King Ahaz is described as very unfaithful. And more than that, the, the chronicler goes on and says that he became yet more faithless. Zoom in on those phrases. They're very important for understanding Isaiah 7. 
He was very unfaithful and he became yet more faithless. Finally, he sacrificed his sons as offerings to false gods and he was the first king from David's line who willingly submitted to a foreign ruler. And he's also mentioned in Jesus' genealogy, by the way. Early in his 16-year rule, Syria joined forces with Israel to attack Judah. So the divided kingdom, Israel's the northern kingdom, Judah's the southern kingdom. Syria joins forces with Israel to attack Judah, seeking to install a new king to replace King Ahaz that with a king that would support them. And we read these words in Isaiah 7, 1 and 2. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Razin, the, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, that's a term for Israel, Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So at this point, Yahweh, the Lord, sends Isaiah, the prophet, to speak a message of comfort to King Ahaz. Isaiah 7, 4. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Razin in Syria and the son of Remaliah. That's Pekah, the king of Israel. In verses 7 and 8, the Lord assures the king that their plot will fail. And he goes further and reveals that the northern kingdom of Israel will not even exist in a very short amount of time, specified as within 65 years. The fulfillment will come much, much sooner. In fact, less than 13 years would pass. While Ahaz is still on the throne in 722 BC, the northern kingdom was conquered and exiled by the Assyrians. But it's the end of verse 9 that issues the challenge to King Ahaz that sets the stage for the prophecy that Matthew quotes. Isaiah is to tell King Ahaz and the people of Judah, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. It's almost certainly right after this encounter between the prophet and the king that the events of 2 Kings 16, verses 7 and 8 occur. The previous verses in 2 Kings 16 indicate that Syria and Israel had attempted to attack King Ahaz but could not prevail, which matches Isaiah 7.1. Then, where we might expect 2 Kings to write about Isaiah, the prophet, showing up with a message from the Lord, instead we read these words. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying... I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of, Assyri- king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of Yahweh and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. So King Ahaz has turned to trust Assyria and rather than trust the Lord. It is this failure of faith in the Lord that leads to the prophet Isaiah's next words. We read in Isaiah 7, 10 and 11. Again, Yahweh spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of Yahweh your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Then we see King Ahaz's response in verse 12. And it sounds pious. It sounds biblical. 
but it's an expression of the king's unbelief. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put Yahweh to the test. Now generally, not putting Yahweh to the test is absolutely right. Generally, not asking for or expecting a sign is absolutely right. However, when Yahweh himself says, ask for a sign, the only appropriate response is, yes, Lord, I'll have a sign, please. (laughs) Isaiah the prophet responds with the prophetic word that Matthew quotes. Look at Isaiah 7, 13 to 17, the whole prophecy. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Yahweh will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So the boy being born here is like a time clock. He's to show them how much time is left before the fulfillment of God's word comes that the enemies, the threat will be removed. Notice several things about the prophecy here. First, the Lord had commanded King Ahaz to request any sign he could think of, as high as heaven, as deep as Sheol, miraculous, humanly impossible, anything. If he had done so, he would have been expressing his faith. The Lord was offering a sign to help his unbelief. But he refused. Thus, The Lord promised to give him and the people of Judah a sign anyway, but this sign would not only verify the truthfulness of his previous word to the king, but it would also serve to signify the Lord's judgment of the king and the people for their continued unbelief. Second, notice that the prophecy says, the virgin, the virgin. This probably indicates that Isaiah was referring to a particular woman who was right there in the room, hearing the conversation. Or at least a woman King Ahaz knew. Now let's talk about the term virgin. This is where the controversy rages and has raged for decades, centuries, nay, millennia. The word virgin, the word translated virgin in the Old Testament is a Hebrew term that does not equal the English word virgin. The English word virgin always and definitely refers to a woman's or person's sexual experience or lack thereof. The Hebrew term typically refers to a young woman who is ready for marriage. And most of the time, that is a virgin. So typically, we are talking about a virgin, but the word itself simply refers to a a woman of a certain age, a certain preparedness, a certain stage of life, if you will. Now, without wading into any more of the details of the controversy in that point, let's just assume, for the sake of argument, that we're to take it as a a word that describes a woman who has no sexual experience. She is a virgin, the way we talk in English. Let's assume that for just a minute. Think about what would the original hearers have understood about what Isaiah was saying when he said, 
the virgin shall conceive. I think the natural understanding of that would be there's a virgin here and she's going to have a sexual encounter with her husband and she's going to conceive a baby. That's all. That's all they would have assumed. They don't have a category, again, for a miraculous conception. And what we see in the rest of Isaiah 7 and on into chapter 8 is there's no emphasis on the virgin. The prophecy is actually focused elsewhere. We'll see that really clearly in just a second. But that's the natural assumption is that we're talking about a woman who is a virgin and perhaps the first time she has a sexual encounter with her husband, she will conceive a baby. Now, that could be considered a miracle in and of itself. But the point of it is not to focus on the virgin. And we're actually going to see that Matthew doesn't focus on that either. It's true. We are talking about the Virgin Mary. So don't, don't think I'm not taking us there. We are. Absolutely. Matthew is very clear about that. Isaiah is not. And that's okay. That's not his point. But we need to see his point. So let's see if we can dig that out a little bit further. Let's raise the question about Isaiah 7 and 8. How would the birth of a baby communicate the message of God's presence with his people? Because that's the meaning of the name, Emmanuel. How would the birth of a baby communicate that message? For the king and his people, it's not just the birth of the baby and the naming that would be significant. It would be the manner of the boy's growth. And it would be within a few years of his birth that Syria and Israel would be eliminated as a threat to Judah. That's the point in Isaiah 7. Syria and Israel are posing a threat. And the prophecy, the message, the announcement, the sign is to show them that I already told you they're going to be gone. Here's a sign that verifies that so that you can look at the sign, the boy, as he grows. And then when Syria and Israel are no longer a threat, you can say, oh yeah, God was telling the truth. They need to be able to see the boy's growth to know that. Ironically, the Lord would use Assyria as his tool, his instrument to bring judgment against Syria and Israel. King Ahaz trusted Assyria instead of trusting the Lord, asked Assyria for help instead of asking the Lord for a sign. Assyria will ironically eliminate the threat, but will Assyria do good to Judah? One writer makes this comparison. Ahaz turning to Assyria is like a mouse threatened by a rat turning to a ravenous alley cat for assistance. So how was the prophetic sign fulfilled? Who was the virgin? Who was the son? When was he born? There are several options, but the way Isaiah writes the next chapter gives us the breadcrumbs to follow to find the answer. The prophecy in 7.14 said, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. In Isaiah 8.3, we read, And I went into the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. It could be that Isaiah is telling us that the prophetess, his wife, is the virgin of 714. The verb translated went into may specifically refer to a couple's first sexual encounter, so that she was a virgin and she became pregnant as a result of their wedding night. Isaiah may use this unique and rare verb to signal that this is his second wife, since he's already referred to one of his sons at the beginning of chapter 7. The prophecy in 7.14 said, You shall call his name Emmanuel. 
In Isaiah 8, 3, we read, Then Yahweh said to me, Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz, which may reflect a battle cry used by plunderers. Hurry for the spoils, rush for the prey. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. When we connect the two names, Emmanuel and Maher Shalal Hashbaz, we may learn that God's presence is not always for blessing. Sometimes God shows up to bring judgment. And that proves to be the case for faithless King Ahaz and the idolatrous people of Judah. Thus, Isaiah's son, born a few years before the Assyrians eliminated Syria and Israel as a threat to Judah, stands as a reminder to the king and to the people that God is with us. And the us refers to those who trust him. And that God is hastening to bring judgment against the unbelief of the people. Another indicator that we're on the right track is another connection between Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 8. In 7.16, the prophecy had said, For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. In 8.4, we read, For before the boy knows how to cry, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Again, Isaiah may have worded these statements so similarly in order to tie the prophecy of chapter 7 to its immediate fulfillment in chapter 8. The name Emmanuel, or the phrase God with us, appears twice in chapter 8 as well. The king and the people of Judah refused to trust the Lord, refused to believe in this message of hope in the birth of this son, Isaiah, his sons, and his students, who show up in 8.16, are going to trust the Lord as part of his faithful remnant in these dark days. So, let's come up for a breath. I spent a long time sketching out that background and unpacking Isaiah 7 and 8. If what I've shared here is at all a legitimate understanding of the Scriptures, the question comes, what in the world is Matthew doing, drawing a straight line of fulfillment between Isaiah 7.14 and Jesus' conception and birth to a virgin woman named Mary. Before I answer that, just observe that as far as we know, before Matthew, no one viewed Isaiah 7.14 as a messianic prophecy. Most other passages Matthew will appeal to were commonly recognized as looking forward to the Messiah in some way but not this one. So, what does Matthew, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, see that no one else could see? First of all, notice that Matthew doesn't focus on the virgin part of the prophecy. Rather, he introduces the quotation with the words in verse 22, all this took place. All this. So it's not just about the manner of the Messiah's conception. It's also about his naming. Second, notice that Jesus, as far as we know from the scriptures, was never actually referred to as Emmanuel. No one walked up to him and said, Hey, Emmanuel, how's it going? It wasn't like a nickname. But it's at this point that we notice how Matthew has tweaked the quotation of Isaiah 7.14. Isaiah 7.14, it's spoken of the virgin naming the boy. Here, Matthew says, they, they 
shall call his name Emmanuel. Like with Emmanuel of Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 8, Mary's boy is actually named something different. His name is Jesus, which has its own symbolic meaning. So, we're supposed to read Emmanuel and Jesus together. Jesus is the one who will save his people from their sins by being God with us. God's presence in Jesus is for salvation primarily and not for judgment. Thus, the they who will call him Emmanuel, who will know Jesus as God with us, are those whom he saves from their sins. So what is Matthew doing with Isaiah's inspired words? He hasn't changed them. He hasn't taken them out of context. Rather, he sees the conception, birth, and naming of Isaiah's second son as communicating the message to God's people that God is still with them in spite of their unbelief and indeed to call them to faith, to call them to trust the Lord. Likewise, the conception, birth, and naming of Mary's son communicates the message to God's people that God is with them. But this time, God is present with His people literally and physically in the person of Jesus. And His presence means the salvation has come. Salvation in fulfillment of all of God's promises. Salvation for the Jews from exile and from for all nations from their exile. I... Matthew sees a pattern in Isaiah that's being repeated with Jesus' birth. And we're going to see that Matthew sees the same kinds of patterns all over the place. And he draws our attention to the patterns. Not as though we're looking at prediction and fulfillment, but we're seeing the story being unfolded and indeed fulfilled. That is, filled to the full. So that in Jesus' experience, he's retelling the story of Israel and bringing it to its proper conclusion. He's filling it with the greater meaning that it always had, but could only be seen after the fulfillment comes. And so we need to look like that. We need to look for that kind of connection, especially as we go into Matthew chapter 2. When Matthew starts pulling on some passages that are much more difficult than this one in the Old Testament. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament much greater than simple prediction and fulfillment. He fulfills the whole story. He fulfills everything. The Gospel writers and the New Testament writers more generally want to show how Jesus connects to everything in the Old Testament. And by doing so, they want to teach us to read our Old Testament through the Jesus lens. So that when we read Isaiah 7, yes, we should read it and understand its message for those original hearers. But we should also see it the way it properly points forward to Jesus. And sometimes that's not easy. Sometimes that's hard. And we're going to do that together as we go through the Gospel of Matthew. But there's one more point to pull from our passage this morning. The righteousness of Joseph. The righteousness of Joseph. Matthew one nineteen, again. And her husband Joseph, being a just or righteous man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. 
And then skip down to verse 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Only two people in Matthew's gospel are referred to as a righteous man with this exact phraseology. Joseph here, and can you guess the other one? Jesus, right? That's the right answer. Jesus. In Matthew 27, 19, the pagan wife of Pilate (laughs) will refer to Jesus as that righteous man. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus will have much to say about righteousness. And I can't help but wonder if Joseph here at the front end of the gospel is to be seen as a model, a kind of model for the kind of righteousness Jesus is going to teach about. Jesus will talk about righteousness in a way that differs sharply from the way the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees in particular, think about righteousness. The common understanding of righteousness would have been conformity to the Mosaic law as well as lining up with the Jewish traditions that had developed over the years. Jesus didn't come to call the righteous people or people who see themselves as righteous anyway. Jesus will publicly shame the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 27, and 28, saying, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had taught his disciples to live differently than their respected Jewish leaders. He said in Matthew 6, 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Joseph's righteousness is not like the phony righteousness of the Pharisees. Matthew says that it was because he was a righteous man and because he was unwilling to publicly disgrace Mary that he resolved to divorce her secretly. Now, that may sound all kinds of crazy to us, but if he were to marry her, as I mentioned earlier, people would have assumed that he was the father and therefore that he had unrighteously, unlawfully conceived a baby before their marriage had been finalized. His righteous reputation would have been lost completely. If he had divorced her publicly, as would most Jewish men, Mary might have been executed. At bare minimum, she would be left without the hope of a future marriage and without the hope of a man to help care for her baby, disgraced as an adulteress for the rest of her life. Her son would serve as her scarlet letter, if you will. But Joseph's righteousness is seen in his desire to exercise compassion toward Mary, to protect her reputation as much as possible. His assumption must have been that Mary had betrayed him, that her character was not what he had come to believe. And many men in that position respond with anger and violence. But he understands what the Pharisees didn't. When the Jewish leaders complained about Jesus' eating with tax collectors and sinners, Jesus chastises them from the Old Testament, from the prophet Hosea, saying in Matthew 9, 13, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Joseph desires to show mercy to Mary, and thus his righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. 
combining that mercy, that compassion with a desire to uphold the Mosaic law as God's word, the best solution he could come up with was to divorce her in private with one or two witnesses, probably from her own family who would have already known about the pregnancy. In intending to provide for Mary like this, even still, he is loving a woman who seems to be his enemy. He is acting very much like one of the sheep of Jesus' parable in Matthew 25, who fed Jesus when he was hungry, gave him water when he was thirsty, welcomed him when he was a stranger, clothed him when he was naked, visited him when he was sick, and came to him when he was in prison. Those sheep are called the righteous who inherit the kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the world. Actually, if you think about it, Joseph probably did most of those things literally to Jesus as a baby. Fed him, gave him drink, clothed him, and welcomed him as a stranger. There's nothing stranger in all the universe than God in diapers. But of course, Joseph is at this point acting out of ignorance. He doesn't yet know the crucial detail. He reasonably assumes the worst, not having any mental category for what has really happened for a miraculous conception. Once that detail is revealed to him by the angel, he obeys the Lord's word. He marries Mary immediately, which of course means that people will assume that the baby is his and that they had been immoral. He might lose his reputation anyway, but he obeys anyway. So he marries Mary, which would mean that she would be living in his house from that day on. And Matthew tells us that he did not sleep with her for the first several months of their marriage. He probably helped deliver the baby that he did not conceive. I know it's hard for men to maintain sexual purity, but Joseph is an example of someone who laid aside his right as a husband for the benefit of his wife for several months. That tells me that sex is not some innate need that must be fulfilled. The angel didn't even command Joseph to do this. He didn't tell him that he could not or should not sleep with her until the baby was born. Joseph chose to do this, resolved to do this as an expression of his righteousness. This is Joseph an ordinary Jewish man who had been looking forward to marriage for at least a year. This is Joseph, an ordinary Jewish man who presumably understood the biblical goodness and value of sexual expression in marriage. This is Joseph, an ordinary, probably young man, not even filled with the Holy Spirit. Get the point? Men... Don't let your urges or your temptations so dominate you that you believe the lie that you cannot help it. Women don't believe the lie that excuses men's lust as just being part of their biological needs. If Joseph could remain pure without the Spirit, without even a command from the Lord, then we Christian men who have the Spirit and certainly have plenty of commands from the Lord to exercise self-control over our sexuality, to flee from sexual immorality, and to serve our wives 
and our wives alone with our sexuality, we can too. Now to conclude, simply the message, the point of all of this is to trust Jesus, our Emmanuel. That's the point. Jesus being God with us is an important biblical theme. But Matthew draws attention to it at the beginning of his gospel, in the middle of his gospel, and at the end of his gospel. Here, we see, in fulfillment of Old Testament expectation, Jesus is God who is with us to save us from our sins. In Matthew 18.20, in the context of what we often call church discipline, we will learn that Jesus is God with us to preserve the purity of his church. And finally, in the great commission of Matthew 28, 20, we will learn that Jesus is God with us to expand the church and to empower the church to make disciples. The only thing left to say is to echo the words of Isaiah again. Do you believe the message? Do you believe God is with us to save us in the person of Jesus? If you are not firm in faith, You will not be firm at all. And to echo an earlier king of Judah, King Jehoshaphat from 2 Chronicles 20.20, believe in Yahweh your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. And to quote Paul as he echoes Isaiah and echoes Joel, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We're going to sing one final song this morning as an expression of our faith. So would you join us and express your faith from the depths of your heart. You can go and come on up. As you sing...